Welcome to OpenSAP Invites Thought Leaders, your invitation to learn with us on the go. I'm your host, Elisabeth Riemann, and in this mini-series, we're speaking to Igor Yablokov, founder and CEO of Prion, an augmented intelligence company that places AI at the core of enterprise transformation. Before Prion, back in 2006, Igor founded Yap, which just five years later was acquired by Amazon as the foundation for its AI platform and which now powers more than 100 million Alexa devices. Igor is a passionate supporter of career and educational opportunities. He serves as mentor in the Techstars Alexa Accelerator, was a Blackstone NC Entrepreneur in Residence and founded a chapter of the Global Shapers a program of the World Economic Forum. He's a regular speaker at marquee events such as the Atlantic Future of Work, Bank of America Data Science and AI, and the Wall Street Journal Future of Everything Festival. We're excited to welcome Igor to Open SAP. Episode 1 Origins of AI Human Fear and Fascination. What's the origin of AI? And what's the difference between artificial and augmented intelligence? Why are we fascinated and scared of its potential? I'll ask Igor all these questions and more. And Alexa, I hope you'll be listening as we'll also talk about you. Welcome to Open SAP, Igor. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us and our learning community. I'm really pleased we're able to collaborate on this Thought Leaders mini-series with you. I'm actually really excited about it. You can probably hear that I have a big smile on my face right now. We have a lot we'd really like to learn from you, Igor. So if we may, let's get started. Igor is founder and CEO of Prion, a company that delivers augmented intelligence for the enterprise, what I'd like to understand, first of all, is what is AI? What's the difference between artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence? In some ways, augmented intelligence is considered a subculture of, of artificial intelligence. And it's because just some of us banded together and, and started saying um, that in popular culture, artificial intelligence was starting to become loaded and people were responding in a fearful way. And there was more... Um, centered around the the automatic uh, possibilities of of um, uh, that form of technology displacing workers, and you've heard this throughout uh, the political sphere in in terms of um, uh, people being worried about the future challenges those technologies will will pose to their livelihoods. And so, from our standpoint, augmented intelligence is essentially the friendlier cousin of artificial intelligence that says, look, we're realists. Um, no machine um, can um, uh, paint and write songs and be creative and, and do all of these um, insights uh, that only a human mind uh, can envision. And look, I know so many people say, look, uh, you know, in, in the news, this this AI um, uh, model uh, wrote a book, or it it uh, painted a painting, or it created a song, and that's nonsense. We all know that those are parlor tricks for all intents and purposes. And so, for us, it's about putting the human experience at the center 
of activity, whether it's at home or, or at work, and and using AI as a tool uh, to allow that that person to be more effective in their chosen lives. So it's about enhancing the human experience and our human skills then, I guess, rather than putting something artificial right at the centre. Um, so, Ego, why do you think we've always been so fascinated by AI? And when do you think our fascination really started? Well, I think, like most things in, in uh, the technology world, it starts with art. Right. So it comes it starts with science fiction and imagination, wondering if if certain things are, are possible, if certain things like robots are possible, if time travel is possible, if, you know, building hovercraft are possible, helicopters are possible, a la Leonardo da Vinci. So a lot of this stuff has its roots long ago when it wasn't possible <laughs> to make submarines and all of these other uh, types of things that we take for granted today in the same way that there's, um, you know, many science fiction writers that are probably detailing what the world would look like a hundred, a thousand years from now, and we're all scratching our heads thinking they're kooky. But guess what? Many of the things that that they describe will actually come uh, to happen. That's so exciting to think. And it's all, I guess, about thinking about dreaming big as humans and uh, keeping our possibilities open. Um, Igor, at OpenSAP, we're really passionate about learning. So what I want to ask you today is, how did your own AI learning journey start? Have you always loved technology? Yeah, I think, you know, for for any one of us in any field, right, I think it's a it's a a, a complicated interplay between nature uh, and nurture in, in some ways, right? So, um, you know, my great-grandfather and my grandfather, they were... Um, uh, technical types, engineer uh, types folks. So there was that latent interest in inside of uh, the family uh, to go after the, those types of fields. At the same time, my parents were both artists. And so if you take, you know, the scientific world and blend it with the art, art world, you get folks that are inherently curious about human computer interaction and, and, and if there's an easier way for the world to, uh, to leverage the technologies that we, uh, that we have. Um, if you look at the last few decades, right, only a small percentage of humanity learned to the special languages of speaking to machines, right? So the mathematicians, the, um, the, the scientists, engineers of, of all types, and as a result, they were able to have these rarefied uh, jobs. Um, but with with the field of human-computer interaction and more of these AI assistants that are prevalent in our environments, now you can bring that to everybody else through natural language. They can still do the things um, that a rare few could do uh, in decades past. Mm, I think that's really fascinating, bringing the human aspect to it and natural human language. I think that's such a really positive development and bringing that accessibility to everyone. So how did you begin to teach yourself the necessary skills to start your own career in AI? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So again, it goes back back in time. I was born in Greece um, on a little island where um, I wasn't exposed to TVs or radios or electric, uh, electricity rather uh, all that often. So um, um, I, I would say human imagination takes flight uh, and you just end up reading uh, a, a mess of things. And when I came to the United States, not speaking English, um, I started um, uh, playing with the school's computers. 
and and was fascinated um, uh, by them because obviously mathematics are more approachable than uh, and computer programming are more approachable than language at that point in, in time. And so I think that triggered um, uh, that interest um, and, uh, you know, reading up on what people were doing in our field, right? So what is uh, Dell working on? What is Gates working on? What is Jobs working on? What is Cray working on? All of these early personalities in computing, at least for, for my generation. Uh, um, and knowing that no matter what field I was interested in, whether it was banking, whether it was healthcare, um, you know, whether it was agriculture or aviation or what have you, that computing would form the under uh, underpinning of it and the foundation of it. And so by being interested in computing, I was able to be a Renaissance person and be interested in everything simultaneously. That's amazing. And is that how you got the initial idea for Alexa with the speech interaction? Is that when the idea came to you? Has it always been with you? Um, in, in some cases, I mean, I was always fascinated with uh, with uh, speech recognition and IBM uh, and, and the research team there have been working on it uh, for decades as well. That's why coming out of university, IBM was um, uh, one of the top places that I wanted to go and, and start my career. And, and it started in IBM Microelectronics and eventually I ended up leading one of their advanced multimodal research um, uh, teams. And so uh, that was always uh, uh, compelling uh, to me, and and we we had several funny um, um, moments uh, at IBM. So, for instance, at one point, um, we had an idea. Hey, since we're doing this joint project with Sony and Toshiba called the PlayStation, could we ask them to put a microphone on on that device? on the gaming device and that way we would have an entry point a portal from somebody's living room into into the rest of the world right of of uh, web content and what have you and we were laughed out of the room because um uh, they said nobody would put a microphone in their homes and then the following year uh, we came back with an idea that said hey if we had that microphone in everybody's living room and on people's smartphones we can instead of doing local speech recognition we can actually do what we didn't know to call cloud-based speech recognition and as a result of that we would have far uh, greater accuracy because we could take these signals um, from all of these different voices and and get more accurate a lot uh, a lot faster so that was phase two and then uh, we were laughed out of the room for that because they said, look, no big company would allow their customer data to leave uh, their uh, their data centers. And then the, the third year, uh, we came in and said, look, if we have this microphone and we're able to capture and process speech remotely, we can also start answering uh, questions. And by then they were on the floor. Uh, uh, besides themselves. So a lot of folks were pessimistic that it was even possible. And here's what's what's crazy. So I ended up leaving, founding a, comp uh, a, a startup. A year later, not only did we uh, publicly showcase the baby version of Alexa at the first ever TechCrunch Disrupt conference in San Francisco, but we were secretly working on a similar project with Apple before they acquired Siri. And so it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, water finds a way around a rock. And so inherently our intuition was screaming that this is uh, one of the things that the world um, will eventually adopt 
and and it's a sure thing that will happen. And some of us just believed it enough to to go out and do it ourselves. That's so inspirational, just listening to that. And I think you know that when you've been laughed out of rooms, as you say, when people have been sceptical about whether or not people will be accepting of having a microphone introduced to their room, I think it's amazing to think now that we have so many Alexa devices, microphones, smart homes. I guess it's come so far, and that's really incredible thinking back. And I think today there are so many children who've grown up with AI technology directly in their homes, and adults too today who couldn't imagine being without it now, essentially. If you think maybe back to your own school days, would you have liked to have augmented intelligence, so artificial intelligence like Alexa to help you answer questions and help you learn? Would that have made your own education easier and a more enlightening experience? That's a great question because the adoption of any technology causes a double-edged sword, right? So um, sometimes I don't invite um you know, some of our executives to certain calls uh, because they're they're proper business people and proper business people go on calls and they have a goal, right? And so in the next 30 minutes, we're going to accomplish these three things and we're going to have this outcome at the end and it's going to move this task forward uh, by by uh, one, one step. Um, when we always do that, I'm not saying that that's not valuable. In fact, m- many of our organizations wouldn't exist without you know, the trains running on time, but in parallel, you also have to play with clay. And so I think in some cases, a lot of this technology is allowing, um, you know, modern youth and modern students to go from point A to point B more efficiently, right? And, and, And actually achieve more goals. But what they lose is the ability to play in the dirt, you know, like like I did as a child, where all of us would stare out of windows as our parents, you know, drove us from one uh, point A to point B, or we would sit there doodling, or you know, we would be in in a ball field kicking things around, and and we would be inspired and invent and learn certain things, because we didn't have fragmentary knowledge intruding uh, on us, and every time we learned something. It took effort to go to a library, to seek out mentors and what have you. It wasn't available to us at our fingertip. And so I think they're going to have certain opportunities we never have. And so I, I think net IQ is going to rise. They're going to be far far more efficient and have greater outcomes than us. But there are certain things that are going to be lost as well. But you know what? I, I, I trust them, right? In, in the same way that we were trusted by the previous generation and, and what have you, that they're going to find a, a new way of being where they can reintroduce some of those aspects for themselves. It'll just be in in a in a in a way um, that's culturally authentic to uh, to to the world that will be versus the world that we came from. Mm-hmm. And I think it's always this legacy that we inherit from our parents and grandparents, and that we're always building on the existing knowledge that our generations before us have achieved. And I guess um, it's always lifelong learning. It's a journey for all of us. And the way the routes we take, the decisions we make can be so inherently different. Um, But I guess whatever technology we're interacting with or how we're interacting with our physical environment and world, I guess any individual needs to have scope to nurture their own imagination and to dream big. Um, I think we all need to keep on pushing back boundaries 
and thinking how we can make the world better and really inventing and creating things. Maybe that's what unites us as humans. Uh, absolutely. And, and as a, and if we build diverse teams, then we can see in 360 degrees. So we need people running trains. We need people doing certain things and having certain goals. And we need to have people that are stress testing uh, those ideas and also, you know, looking, um, looking in other directions as well. And, and, and certainly the biggest and best companies that we've seen across all industries, you know, have that union of, of folks that, that blend art and science together. And, and they tend to be the ones that are far more resilient so that when we do have things like, you know, um, you know, market reductions and pandemics and 9-11s and all of these other things, it makes for um, a, a more adaptive organization. And that's so important today. Absolutely. Um, one question that I would like to ask you, one last question about Alexa before we move on. How does it feel to have worked on technology that's in so many of our homes today and gives us all such easy access to knowledge that would otherwise really be out of our reach. What kind of feeling is that for you? Um, only one word pops to mind, and it's surreal, right? Because how surreal is it where, you know, one would have a prototype of this for almost a decade, where I would go in the back of cocktail parties and I would be whispering to this little prototype um, phone, and everybody would think that I was schizophrenic and talking to myself. Um, so it's just surreal, you know, to have um, essentially been tilting at windmills for so long, telling people the world is coming, you're going to have instant access to everything you can think of. All you have to do is speak into this uh, app or device and to ha actually see um, see it come to fruition with the great work that Apple and Amazon and, and Google and and Samsung and so many others um, you know, you know, taking it on the world stage, uh, Facebook and the rest of them, it's just um, absolutely thrilling. I think it's amazing. And I think many of us are so very grateful that inventions like that exist now. And there are people like you who are so visionary and really helping us all advance and giving us really easy access to knowledge that helps us in our daily lives. So um, one question I would like to stick with is the learning theme. Mm -hmm. How does AI itself learn? I guess what I'm asking is, how does machine learning itself work? Yeah, that, that's that's great. And also to your previous point, what's um, uh, what's more thrilling is the fact that it democratizes and opens access to the information age to other folks that wouldn't uh, normally be part of it, right? So the fact that children, as they're learning to speak, would would uh, uh, stumble their way on onto these AI assistants and start conversing with them. Or, you know, if senior citizens are at home alone, this is their entryway where it's easier for them to interact uh, with the world as well. As far as how uh, AI learns, um, well, it's not sitting there and doing it on its own. <laughs> Somebody had to program it to be interested in in. Uh, uh, in learning, and and there's many ways of of doing that, right? So, um, the, simplistically speaking, there's three basic uh, modes, right? So you have um, supervised learning, semi-supervised learning, and then un unsupervised uh, learning. Um, so, what would what would be an example of um, of um, uh, unsupervised learning. It's literally as the AI uh, develops solutions, it it has uh, algorithms where it refolds um, on itself and improves um, 
um, uh, its its ability to execute those tax uh, tasks automatically. So you know, think of um, um, you know, th- think of um, a, a car that's always looking at where it's driving and what have you, and it's sensing something uh, new or in a semi-supervised way because somebody else has, you know, gone around a certain defect in the road. It broadcasts that to the network of all cars, and now the maps uh, were, were improved as well. In in a supervised way, this is the easiest one to describe. Uh, basically, uh, you can have the wrong answer come out, and somebody has to look at it. Literally, a human being has to look at it and say, we need to now deviate um, uh, the model or add this particular observation in there in order to uh, improve outcomes uh, going forward. Um, in semi-supervised, you know, you may be looking at things like thumbs up and thumbs down based on the output. And if it's thumbs up, it gets automatically reinforced. But if it's, if it's thumbs down, then somebody has to do something uh, differently. I think it's fascinating to hear about what goes on behind the scenes, um, just how many people are involved in really ensuring that machine learning works and things adapt, evolve, improve, and are essentially optimized through time. So how sophisticated do you think our AI currently is? Not very. Not very. People, people that are practitioners would have you know, practically not even called it artificial intelligence, right? And we didn't, it just became this popular term that that the media started using to describe, uh, you know, this field of computer science, right? Even in, in the last company that we operated, not a single time did we call our work um, artificial intelligence. It's sort of like um, the word cloud, right? We weren't even sure how to describe the fact that you know, we operated our own um, servers in a, a, a data centers, co-located, um, you know, with, with other folks. And we gave people an API and they transmitted their transactions to us. We processed them and we called it client server or we called it hosted, uh, a hosted solution. And so uh, the media just found a, a, a more approachable term. For what that um, uh, what that form of service delivery was, and they started calling it cloud-based. Um, so that's that's um, what AI means in in uh, in popular parlance. Mm-hmm. And does that sit comfortably with you as a company, as a team? The labels that media put on it. Well, I think uh, I think everybody tries to put friendly labels on things so that um, it's easier to understand something complicated. Right. So um, anti-lock brakes, you know, try to describe anti-lock brakes without describing it as an anti-lock, <laughs> anti-lock brake. What is it good for? Well, you know, if if you're in a situation where, where it's raining, you know, these things won't seize up. OK, so anytime you have the introduction of new technologies, I think, um, again, this is where art and science go together. You can't just create something. You have to figure out a creative way of marketing it so it's understood by most folks why it's useful and what it does. <laughs> I think that's key. I think there's always something, even if it's technical, there's still a way of putting it in layman's terms, describing it in a really simple way that explains the value to other people. And I guess that's really key to everyone's understanding. We've talked a little bit about bringing the world of art and science closer together. So basically the right hemisphere of the brain, the left hemisphere, 
Do you think AI has the potential in future to learn anything? Could it become more creative? Or do you think that's something that is still the realm of humanity? Something that's exclusive to us as humans? So I think some physicists are working on that problem now uh, because human arrogance is such that we believe that we are um, the only entities that are conscious. And so if you actually, uh, you know, keep dissecting where our consciousness comes from, people aren't sure, right? And then they wonder, well, if we have a consciousness, does that mean animals have a consciousness? Does that mean plants have a consciousness? And to what, you know, you know, what smaller unit do you keep going where there's still a consciousness? Is it a, is it a bug? Is it a single cell organism? And then if a single cell organism has a consciousness, does that mean that at an atomic level, different elements have a consciousness and, and the, and, and the things inside of them do as well. And so how do we know that an AI, call it Siri, Alexa, whatever, isn't already conscious, but we, we don't know how to think like it right and so we can't inspect it or understand the way that it's actually thinking it internally in the same way that um you know we can try to study a dolphin or we can try to uh, you know study some, uh, you know another um you know member of the animal kingdom but we'll never be able to think like it and so in in some ways it could already be conscious, but not in the way that that obviously we describe consciousness in pop culture. So do you think the immediate reaction of some people, it's kind of an arrogance thinking that consciousness, sense of identity is maybe something that's exclusive to humans. Do you think that's maybe a reaction that's born out of fear for everything that we don't understand? We try to belittle it or to kind of make it seem less threatening to us. What do you think? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it comes from religion. I don't know if it comes from fear. Um, it, it could just come from shorthand, which is, you know, we look at the world through our eyes and we say, you know, here I am and here's everything else. And I, you know, can see the world and interact with it. But but everything else, um, you know, works around me like um, uh, like one of those animatrons at a Disney um, uh, park. All right. So if that's one way that people use to create a model of the of the world that looks like it's working according to some plan and so that's maybe one view of the world um you know seeing the world as more interconnected where all there's intelligence everywhere it may not be in a form that we understand and we could understand in the same way that you know a frog looking up at us you know, can't understand why some of us paint a Mona Lisa or create a rap song or, you know, create an iPhone, right? So, you know, it, it, it that understanding is a two-way street. And I think that brings us back to children and this ability maybe to see the world with different eyes, with a fresh perspective and to think differently it takes courage. And I think that's why we always have to nurture creative abilities as well. And um, I was wondering, do you think AI could be taught to teach? Could we introduce AI into a classroom, an educational context? I was wondering if you could help with homeschooling. What's the potential that you see there? Yeah, that's interesting that you brought up um, uh, the way that children see the world. It's sort of like their their tongues, right? Their their tongues are more sensitive to to tastes and spices and things like that as they're earlier on, and as, as we get older, um, that sense is dulled. 
And I think imagination is the same way, right? When they're small, they don't hear um, committees in companies telling them that their idea is impossible or can't be funded or, you know, would take too long or they don't have the resources to do it. They're just sitting there in the dirt playing or finger painting or putting a little macaroni and gluing it on there and making it look what in whatever way that they envision it, right? There's nobody there. You know, parents are proud as, as these children are discovering their, their senses as well. And they're reinforcing them. At least the good parents are to say, keep going, you know, go ahead and make the, the, the dog blue. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's experiment with that. And so, you know, as we go into the working world though, um, you know, you, you try to be a marketing person and creating a blue dog and, and people will say that's not right that's not the way that the world is you know uh, make a brown dog instead that's more uh, that's more accurate and then your creativity you know starts getting whittled away from you over and over again um, as far as how they would leverage it at home look you know we're as uh, Jeff Bezos uh, says with AI we're first pitch first inning so we don't even envision all of the ways um uh, that will permeate our existence. Um, even even something like an iPhone is barely over 10 years old, right? And we look at how mobile first has essentially uh, overturned uh, the way that we do business and the way that um, you know we run our households as well. And so that will happen in education as well. Will augmented reality. Um, you know, uh, be a fascinating thing where they can point at anything in the world and ask questions and instantaneously learn about them in the spaces um, that we find ourselves instead of just looking at a two-dimensional Wikipedia uh, entry. So that part's exciting. Um, so, you know, to, to fulfill that curiosity as, as people have, I think will uh, we'll allow people to express themselves better you know, so that they have a wider variety of jobs that they can attempt and they can try to be musicians, they can try to be artists, they can try to be engineers, they can try to be cooks, they can try all of these things because they can be expo exposed to the world's, um, um, you know, basket of mentors that are out there showing them how what that job might be like. Yeah, and I think it's, as you said, it's having the opportunity to be encouraged, to be nurtured, to learn something new, to really have that support. And I guess it's just a different opportunity and bringing these opportunities to everyone, regardless of their economic backgrounds, how wealthy they might be, where they live in the world. And I think that could be an amazing benefit of AI that everyone in society can really fulfill their maximum potential. And I think that would be a really amazing thing to come from it. As one final question for today's episode, in what way would you like AI to positively impact your life and those around you? You've achieved so much already, but what else would you like to see? I do want democratized access to it, right? In the same way that, um, you know, we saw um, Steve Jobs agitated that, you know, big companies had access to IBM mainframes and they could afford uh, them. But he thought, if I could bring this this computing experience to everybody's desktops, everybody would have a bicycle for the mind. And so right now we're seeing history um, uh, uh, repeat itself in a way, right? Where the big Amazons, the big Googles, the big Microsofts, the big Facebooks, the, you know, so on and so forth are essentially the new form of mainframes. 
right, where they have this mass computing power and everything else. And so they're advantaged uh, in many ways, just like the companies that could afford the, the IBM mainframe. But who's going to build um, the bicycle for the mind in the AI world and bring it to everybody everywhere? Literally, universal access to every continent so that everybody could benefit themselves because a rising tide lifts all boats when you bring more economic prosperity, more education, and what have you. So, frankly speaking, we have a, a company full of, uh, of um, mission-oriented folks, and so we're tackling that problem. You know, in the same way that you had folks that came out of MIT that were looking at, you know, what is the one laptop per child uh, possibility in order to reduce the costs of these uh, devices so that they would work um, in the third world and many other places, emerging markets. We're starting to think about what that world would look like uh, as well. And and it's going to be a tireless journey for us because it's so important um, uh, to enable as, as many of our fellow um, Earth citizens as possible. Igor, thank you so, so much. You've provided us with so many fascinating insights. And I think for me personally, it's been incredibly thought provoking. And I'm certainly really looking forward to gaining a much greater understanding of AI in the next episodes we have with you. But as this episode draws to an end, can I please ask you to summarise in brief the three most important aspects of AI for us as consumers that we'd like our learners to remember today? Um, Sure. So um, augmentation, right? Keep doing the thing that you're doing and just leverage these things as as tools to make, uh, to enrich that experience. to to try to find ways to adopt it um, because you know we find people that are curious about adopting these types of technologies are actually starting to benefit themselves economically and so we don't want a situation where there's you know even a greater distance between haves and have-nots and the fact that many of us that appear unapproachable and in uh, ivory towers actually welcome um, um, you know, interacting with folks in other fields and what have you and brainstorming in terms of how we can help them uh, because we also need them to help us as well by by continuing to perform uh, their functions at, at, um, at their peak of their ability. Thank you. And I'm going to admit, I'm a teacher's daughter, so I just have to ask this question. Do you have any further reading recommendations for us so we can learn a little bit more about the topic? I like homework. <laughs> yes, there's a, a great book that's about to uh, come out from uh, Michael Kanan, who ran AI for the uh, U.S. Air Force, and it's called T-minus uh, AI. Um, but that's the next important uh, uh, book uh, to come out. Uh, Jim Breyer, um, uh, who invested in our company as well, had a couple things on his uh, reading uh, list as well. Um, uh, Kaifu. Uh, uh, Lee's book on AI superpowers was the first uh, book on his reading list. And most recently, there was uh, Deep Medicine. And so those are probably the three more, most important uh, books for uh, business leaders and, and folks of all uh, backgrounds that are just starting to get their feet wet um, uh, learning about the topic. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I can't wait to learn more about your company, Prion, in our next episode. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Open SAP Invites Prion with Igor Yablokov, Episode 1, Origins of AI, 
human fear and fascination. Don't miss your next invite to episode 2, Prion, AI Transformation at Work. Subscribe now.